You guys ready to discover redemption next week? All right, it's going to be great. We handed out 600 plus of these cards yesterday, and we invited a lot of people personally to come to our Easter services, and I'm excited. I'm praying for a great turnout. I already met a family that came in the first service because of an invite yesterday. So I hope that you guys are thinking, well, who am I going to invite? Okay, who am I going to invite? We had some great volunteers yesterday, but you guys... You guys are the ones to pass out these cards, and we want to see a lot of people here so that they can hear about where true redemption is found and what it is. What it is. All right, well, it's so good to see you. My name's Matt Wolf. I'm the lead pastor here. For those of you who don't know, um, we are finishing up our series today, Elisha Seeing the Unseen. So you came for a really good day. It's the finale. It's the finale. That's what everybody tunes in for, right? I'm glad that you're here. We're going to finish up our series today, and then we're going to do a special Easter message. I've got something cooking right now. It's going to be good. And then in two weeks, we're going to start a series on contentment. So you're going to want to be here for that contentment in a world of discontent. So that's going to be exciting as well. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open them up to 2 Kings chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 10. We're going to jump ahead from last week, if you were here last week. If you just have a smartphone or whatever, you can get there as well. And we'll have the the main verses up on the screen here. So we are finishing up the story of Elijah. And have you guys been kind of surprised about some of the bizarre stories in this series? There's been some bizarre stories. If you miss any, you've got to go back and either watch or listen on stapletonchurch.com. We have that. Or just read it. I mean, the book's good. The book's good. It starts in 2 Kings chapter 2. It really talks about Elisha and who he was. But some amazing, incredible things that he was a part of. Miracles that happened around him and through him. And today, maybe, is the weirdest and most bizarre one yet. Save the best for last. I know I've said that there's been some bizarre ones, but maybe this one's the most bizarre. And it's one of those stories that even people that have grown up in church, gone to Sunday school, they're like, I've never heard of that. Never heard of that. I had somebody say like, Matt, I went to Bible school and I'd never heard that story. You know, it's that unique and bizarre, but it's so powerful. So I'm glad you're here today. So in the late 70s, Did you like that transition right there? Just stop and start. In the late 70s, that's what they teach you in school. In the late 70s, there was two golfers. And they were just starting at the University of Houston, which, if you know anything about golf, that was one of the best programs in the country, still is, for golfers. And there was these two guys that started there as freshmen at the same time. So on the first day of practice, the coach had everyone in the circle go around and say what their life goal was in relation to golf. And the first guy was a man from Seattle, And he said, you know, I've always dreamed of getting the green jacket put on me at the Masters. You know, if you win the Masters, it's coming up in just a couple weeks, you get the green jacket. It's a big ceremonial thing. So that was his dream. I want to win the Masters, one of the majors. Uh, That's what I've thought about my whole life. That's what I want to do. And the second guy, he's a guy from North Carolina, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm probably not that good of a golfer, let's be honest. Good enough to make it on one of the great teams, but he said, my life goal is to interview the person who wins at the Masters. That's what he said. He's like, this is my life goal. Those guys became roommates in college. And they would literally practice in their dorm room the acceptance speech for winning the Masters. They would take out a coat and they would put it on. You know, the first guy and the second guy would say, well, what, how do you feel? How would you feel on that last putt? You know, they would practice this over and over. Well, fast forward 15 years, 1992, and that first guy won the Masters. Guy by the name of Freddie Couples. You may know him if you're uh, a golf fan. Freddie Couples, he won the Masters. Guess who was there to interview him after he got the green jacket put on him? Jim Nance, the second guy. What I love about that story, and I heard an interview with Jim Nance, is that they planned and knew exactly what their goal was, right? They knew the end goal. They're like, this is where we are. This is where we want to be. 
And they practiced, they rehearsed it, they imagined it and said, that's what we want. That's what we want. And what I want to do today is challenge you guys to think about the end. Not with your career, that, that's important. It's not, let, not downplay that. There's important things that we have goals with our career. Not even with your home, you know, if you want to have that dream home, that, you know, that's fine. It, or, or that you want to have even with your family. Those are important goals that we should have and we should think about and plan. But what I'm talking about is thinking about the very end of your life. What is it going to be like at the very end for you? Because there's going to be some challenging things in your life. Things are going great right now. There'll be some hard times. There'll be some challenges. There'll, there'll be some deaths that you'll experience in your life. So how are you going to get from here where you are right now to the last day? And will you be faithful throughout it all? That's my challenge to you. I want us to think about the end just like Jim Nance and Freddie Couples did so that we can get there and say, I have made it. I have finished the race. So that's what we're talking about today because we are looking again at Elisha at the very end of his life. And as we're going to see here um, in our first verse, um, in verse 14, we read, Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. So he is getting older. I tried to do some calculations. It's a little tricky, but he's at least in his early 60s. He could be up into his 80s depending on the reign of kings, because that's basically how we were able to track that chronologically. So he's getting older. He's getting older. But it says that he has an illness from which he died. So he is on his deathbed right now. He's sick. He's dying. He's about ready to go to the end. He's at the end of his life, right? And I want us to look at his life and learn from it. How did he get there? Because he had done such great things. But how did he get to the point where even at the end, he is going to be faithful? Now, I want to throw in a bonus point here. I I usually just try to stay focused on one big idea for our messages. But I have to throw this out here. Because there are some people who preach what's called the prosperity gospel. It's this idea that if you believe hard enough, you will be healthy and wealthy. That you just have to believe enough and you'll be healed and you'll have money. And... Then we see someone in here like Elisha, one of the greatest prophets to ever live, a faithful man if there ever was one, and he's dying of an illness. The truth is that people get sick and die from their sicknesses, even true believers. So I want to throw that out there. That's just a little bonus point there. Okay? Now we can move on to the real message, but I want to point that out. So Elisha is here on his deathbed, right? Lying there, and a king comes to see him. Now last week we were introduced to a pretty uh, wild... King. That was a crazy message last week, wasn't it? If you guys missed that, oof, it's fun. Somebody described it as great games of thronish, and I said, no, that I guess that's just biblish. I've never, you know, seen that show, so I don't really know. But uh, there's a lot of blood and guts. There were kings killing, and then Jehu, finally the good king that God used, and he wasn't great because he wiped out a lot of people, killed a lot of people in order to rid the nation of evil. And maybe he went too far. We don't know. Somebody asked me that, like, was that okay? I was like, I don't know. God used him, and that's what God does, right? He works through imperfect kings. That's what we learned last week. He works through imperfect people in power to accomplish his ends. So here is now two generations after Jehu, that wild king. Two generations, and these kings are okay. You know, the Bible doesn't say great things about them, but it doesn't really say they were the worst. They were okay, right? Imperfect. And this king now is going to Elisha on on Elisha's deathbed. You have to be pretty important for a king to come to you on your deathbed, right? Pretty important. And it says that Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. 
So here is the king weeping for this prophet who would die. And of course, the prophet was the spokesperson for God in this time. He was the spiritual leader of the entire nation. And this phrase that he uses, my father, my father, of course, is showing deference, showing respect to Elisha. But then he says, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And that's interesting, because there have been two times in our series that this same phrase has been used. Does anybody remember? Really challenging you guys. It was in the very, uh, in chapter 2 of 2 Kings, when Elijah was going up into heaven. Elisha was going to have to step up. It was his turn to now take over from Elijah. And Elisha sees these chariots and horsemen of fire. It was the angel army of God. He saw them. And it was amazing. And that's what Elisha cries out. But then there's a second time that this phrase shows up. It was when Elisha was surrounded by an Aramean army. They were trying to kill him, assassinate him. And his servant is freaking out, totally afraid. And Elisha says, you just need to open up your eyes. He prays and he opens up his eyes and there's this whole angel army surrounding them, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. So I was really trying to figure out, well, what is the king referencing with this? Because he probably wasn't alive during those two incidents. He'd probably heard about them, these great stories that maybe his grandfather had told him. But why would he say this? And I think it's because he thought he was losing his best weapon. See, the king was weeping. He's not a really faithful guy. That's what the Bible says. It says, oh, he's pretty evil, but he's also fine, you know. He's just a normal guy. He's not really religious, not very spiritual. But he's weeping when the prophet dies because he thinks, man, this prophet is the reason why we can win. He has won battle after battle, war after war without even fighting. And now this guy is going to leave me? I'm going to be left all on my own? How am I going to get through? I don't know if I can do this. So he's freaking out. And that's why he says, "Uh uh-oh, that angel army that was with Elisha, that was with Elijah, they're going to be gone. And there's no hope for me as a king and as a nation. So that's why he's mourning. But what I love about this is that Elisha is now going to talk with him and teach him something in this moment. And what I love the most about this is that Elisha is on his deathbed. He had been serving for decades, maybe 40, 50 years as a prophet, serving people, going all over the world. And here he is dying and he's still serving other people. I love that because if anyone deserved retirement, it was probably this guy, right? He's on his deathbed. He (laughs) he can barely get up probably. And he's saying, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help this king. And that's what I love. I want to point out, you know, the Bible does talk about this concept of retirement. And even in the Old Testament, it says for Levitical priests that they were supposed to retire at 50. And I think part of it was to get the young guys in there. Um, So there is a concept of retirement in the Bible. But even for those priests, they still were expected to serve and worship God. You see, as followers of Jesus, as believers... We never retire. We don't. We might change what we do from nine to five, but we never retire from our faith. So this is, uh, I want to bring up our big idea right now because this is so important, is that God calls us to be faithful till death. And he promises to be faithful beyond the grave. So he was calling Elisha to be faithful this way, till death, till your last breath. You're still alive. I don't care how sick you are. And Elisha is still serving, because that's how God calls every single one of us. Now, some of you in here feel a specific call on your life. You say, God has called me to move to this place, or to start this career, or to do this thing. That's your specific call. God gives those to people, but to everyone, he gives the general call to follow Jesus, to serve, to love. Do you know every single Christian is commanded to love your neighbor? To love your enemy? 
to share the gospel with those who are lost, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We're commanded, every single one of us is commanded to do this, and we don't get to take time off. We don't get to take retirement. God calls us to be faithful until our dying breath. And that's what Elisha shows us. That's what Elisha shows us. And that's what he's doing. He's helping out this king at the very end. But there's something interesting that he does now. He does get up off his bed, weak and frail and, and feeble as he is. He gets off his bed and he commands the king. I mean, which of us would command a king? But he tells the king, he says, go get a bow and arrow. The king comes back with a bow and arrow. And Elisha grabs him and kind of holds over him as if he's going to be the one shooting, right? As the king's holding, because he's probably too weak to do it himself. And they say, okay, open the east window. And he shoots an arrow, Elisha helping the king now, shoots this arrow right out the east window. Thankfully, nobody's underneath. The arrow goes out there, and Elisha says, just like that arrow sailed to the east, God will help you destroy the enemies to the east, the Arameans. You will vanquish them. Elisha was saying this because this guy's afraid. He's like, you're leaving me. Where are the angel armies going to be? And Elisha's saying, God will still be with you. But then he does something even more interesting. Elisha says, okay, now take the rest of the arrows that are in that quiver. Pulls them out, and he's like, okay. And Elisha says, okay, I want you to strike the ground with those arrows. Keep striking. Now, this is odd. This is not normal in ancient Israel, in case you're wondering. This is unusual. So the king has these arrows. He starts hitting the ground once. He hits it a second time. He's probably looking around like, what's going on? He hits it a third time, and then he stops. We're not told why he stopped. We're not told if he was embarrassed or if he didn't know what he was supposed to do. But Elisha is angry. This is what it says. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. What? Weird, right? This is a bizarre story and it's just going to get even weirder. Just wait. This is bizarre. Strike the ground. Okay, is this like an ancient version of Simon Says? Keep doing, you know, keep doing the thing until someone tells you to stop. It's basically what it is, right? So God gave a command to the king through Elisha saying, just strike and keep striking. But the king stops. The king stops. He decides to not do it anymore. And because of that, because he didn't continue to do what he was told to do, God says, you're not going to receive the full blessing that you would have. That's what happens. And this king did win three battles. There were some great battles, and, and that actually happened in history, and they took back some land, but he didn't have a complete victory over their enemies. Because the king didn't do all that he had been called to do. Now, I don't think God is telling you to strike the ground with arrows, but he is telling you to love your neighbor. To forgive. Even the people you don't want to forgive. And it's not just three times. Seventy-seven times, right? Seven times seven. That's what Peter said. You've got to continually forgive. You've got to continue to do these things we're commanded to do, even when we want to take a break, even when we want to take some time off, even though we get busy and our, we're taking the kids to soccer and it's on weekends and, man, it's been six months now since we've been in church, but God tells us to be faithful. God calls us to be faithful no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening in our life. He says, we don't get a retirement, we don't take a time off. I want you to be faithful and follow me until you die. That's the call. That's the call, faithful till death, that he calls us to. Now, I did mention retirement a little bit, and I know there's some of you in here who have retired or are nearing retirement, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, that's a good thing. But remember that following Jesus never ends. So think about how now that you have a new stage in your life, 
What can God do? And those of us who are younger, think ahead. Okay, even when I get to that stage, it doesn't mean just leisure. You know, I read a study that found that 50% of people who live a leisurely life as retirees don't like it. They don't. They don't like that life. They, because we are called, we're active people. We want to be working. We want to be doing something. And when we just sit and watch TV, the average retiree watches 45 hours of TV a week. Some of you are like, that's it? You know, but the point is, like, we can get so involved with other things, but God is saying, hey, no, no, let's be faithful till our last breath. Like Elijah on his deathbed, getting up as feeble as frail as he can to help that king and to show him because the king gave up after three times. It was hard, or, or he didn't know what to do, he was embarrassed, he stopped. But he had had a clear command to continue to do it. And probably Elisha would have made him stop after five or six times. That's what he said. And after five or six, he would have had the full victory. There's only five battles that you're going to have to fight, six. Um, Ralph Winter once said, Men don't die of old age, they die of retirement. I don't want any of you to do this. I want you guys to think about the end. To think about the end goal. What am I going to be with my last breath? And will I be faithful? And then in verse 20 of our chapter, we read, Elisha died and was buried. He doesn't go up into heaven in a whirlwind. There's no chariots of fire like there were for Elijah. He just dies and he's buried. I think this is how most of us are going to go. I did 25 funerals in my five years as a pastor in Nebraska. I've been and seen a lot of people at, that have died from all different backgrounds and everything. And the thing is, when you are faithful to God and you live a good life and you have the blessing to live into old age, all your friends will have died. I've seen it a lot. You won't have a lot of people at your funeral. You were faithful. You were a great person, but there's not, just, there's not very many people around than you back then. That's how it goes. There are some people, usually when you die younger, there are more people at your funeral. But most of us won't have our obituary written up in the New York Times. Most of us won't have a thousand people at our funeral. We will be die, die and buried. And I love that that's what happens to Elisha. Because he was faithful till the end. And it's simple. Half a sentence, right? I mean, just a few words. But that's such a good reminder to us that we need to strive to do that. Because, do you remember what our big idea is? God calls us to be faithful to death, and he promises to be faithful beyond the grave. When we aim for the last day of being faithful and believing in Jesus and following him for all our life, when we do that, we're not looking till that day of our death. We're not, we don't care how many people show up at our funeral. We don't care what people say at us at the open mic. We care about what happens afterwards. We live not for these 70, 80, 90 years, however long we get to live. We live for the eternity, the trillions upon trillions of years that we get to reign in heaven with God. And that's what Elisha shows us too with the most bizarre story yet. It's the most bizarre story yet. So, it, it says in the spring, so Elisha had been dead and tombs at the time, people weren't buried in coffins, they didn't have their own headstone, they were thrown in caves. There were already caves dug into the ground, they were put in there. Sometimes they put a stone in front of it Maybe you've heard a story about that. Come back next week and you will for sure. Sometimes they had a stone over them. But even if they did, even if they did, a lot of these tombs, because they were big caves, there weren't a ton of them, they would have multiple people, multiple families in one tomb. So here are a group of people in the spring and they're going out to bury another guy, a random dude, we're not even told his name. He's dead. They're going out to bury him and they're putting him in the same tomb that Elisha had been laid in. 
But it was also the time in the spring where it says the Moabite raiders would come. So these were people that were bandits that would come and steal uh, flocks. And so these uh, raiders are coming up over the hill. And these Israelites see them freak out. And they don't have time to finish the funeral or, or wrap the guy up. They just throw him in the tomb. Just throw his body in there so they can book it out of there. But what happens is as soon as the body goes in, it hits Elisha's bones. Remember, he's not in a coffin. His bones. And then the man stands up and walks out. What? I told you it was the most bizarre story yet. What? This hasn't happened any other time in the Bible where someone's bones brought another person back to life. It doesn't happen. It's so bizarre and so unique, and it only takes two verses in your Bible. It's probably why a lot of us have never heard this story before. Two little verses. But it's so amazing. What I love about it is it shows this guy, Elisha, faithful to the death. But God is giving us a hint now, even in the Old Testament, even before Jesus would come, that there would be life after death. That there would be something more. Now, in the Old Testament, they weren't given a full picture of it. People believed for hundreds and thousands of years, and they didn't know. David kind of knew. He said, oh, you know, he, he had this picture of the afterlife, of what it could be. But they didn't know for sure. But we get this glimpse here that God has power over death. And he says, I will give you eternal life if you believe. This is an incredible story. And what it calls us to do is to be faithful until the end. We take care of our part. We're faithful to the end. And then God is faithful beyond the grave. That's what we learned from this bizarre story. Now, we've seen Elisha, and he has been faithful throughout his life and his ministry. He's done some incredible things. I'm sure we know that he wasn't perfect, but he did some incredible things. I just want to give you a little bit of recap, because some of you missed some of the messages. So in our first week, we learned when Elisha was called to ministry, that to discover something greater, we have to leave the good behind. And that's what he did. He left his fields, where it was a good business. And then when it was his time to take over from Elijah... When it was his time to step up, we learned that what God calls you to, he empowers you through. And then when Elisha was out in the desert with the army and they had no water to drink, we learned that what we see as impossible is an easy thing for God. Elisha was there believing during that time. And then Eli Elisha had some interaction with a few widows, didn't he? There was one widow whose sons were being sold into slavery because she didn't have enough money. And all she had was a jar of oil. And Elisha says, okay, that's enough. And what we learned as the oil multiplied and multiplied and multiplied was that when you offer what you have, God takes care of the rest. That's what Elisha was teaching. And then there was a Shunammite, Shunammite woman who wasn't a widow. She had no children. But then God miraculously gave her a child. And then the child died. And through that uh, terrible story, that son was brought back to life by Elisha. And we learned that sometimes it's hard to hope but it's hope that gets you through the hardest times. And then we came to Naaman, one of the foreign generals, and he came because he wanted to be healed. And Elisha taught him, and he in turn teaches us that those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And when Naaman went into the water, he was healed. We learned about this bizarre story about the axe head. This prophet is, throws an axe head in the water on accident. He says, oh no, I lost it. And Elisha throws the sticks in and floats to the surface. A little tiny miracle, but we learned that there is no small thing for our big God. Nothing's too small for him. And then when they were surrounded, I mentioned that story before, and God had to open up the servant's eyes to see the angels, we learned that even when we can't see it now, God is at work. 
God is at work. We learned when there was a siege and people were literally eating each other because they had no food. We learned that salvation is available to all, but only those who believe it will receive it. And then last week, through Jehu, we learned that we need to trust the king of kings to work through the imperfect kings that we see. And today, of course, we finish this out by looking at that faithful man, Elisha, because he was faithful till death. God promises to be faithful beyond the grave. I bring that up because a lot of us hear these stories, and yes, I've been challenged in my faith, and I hope that you have as well in this series. It's really been a challenging series for our faith. But why I bring it up even more is that we look at someone like Elisha and we say, I can't do that. I don't think I could be faithful till my deathbed. I have been unfaithful. I have let God down. I have sinned. I have done wrong. I've gone years, decades, walking away from God. What hope is there for me? Do I not have hope beyond the grave? But there's another verse coming at the end of our passage. If we can pull up this verse um, in, in 2 Kings 13.23. It says that the Lord was gracious to them, the Israelites, and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elisha was alive for some of the worst kings in human history, and God continued to work through them, saving the nation over and over again, though they didn't deserve it. Why? Because God is faithful. He promises to be faithful. No matter what we do or how far astray we go, says there is grace for you. And that's why we look forward, as we're looking next week, and they look forward to Jesus. Because Jesus would be a prophet like Elisha. He would heal people. He would perform miracles. He would go help widows and the poor, the people who were needy. But unlike Elisha, he didn't get to die of old age, of an illness, quietly. Jesus was executed on a cross by the people he came to save. And he did it to forgive us of our sins, to purchase our redemption. Come back next week. And what's amazing is that there were no bones in Jesus' tomb, right? When they went on the third day, the stone was rolled away and there was nothing there except the clothes, the cloths that uh, uh, Jesus had been buried in. Jesus had risen from the dead, not causing some other guy to spring back to life, but he himself came back to life and appeared to over 500 period, people over a period of 40 days. He proved that he had power over death, beyond the grave, and that if we believe in him, we can have that power too, and that our last day won't be the last. And that's why we strive to be faithful. God is going to be faithful no matter what, but we will strive for that last day. You know, I think I've mentioned him three times in the last four messages, but I'm probably the only one counting. But it's Billy Graham. Of course, he died a few weeks ago. Hero for me. I hope a hero for a lot of you. And you might not know this, but in 1945, when he first started his ministry, he was only one of three guys that were the best preachers of his day. There were three guys that were phenomenal. In fact, the other two were probably more famous at the time. They were all in their 20s, mid-20s. They all started out together in ministry. And some of the other ones had articles written about them. There were no articles written about Billy Graham at the beginning. But they had thousands and thousands of people to come hear these three guys preach. But you've only heard of Billy Graham, right? I don't think you've probably heard of Bron Clifford or Chuck Templeton. You? Do you know Why? Because Chuck Templeton, after five years, decided to pursue a career in movies, in TV, in radio, and after just a few years, he left the faith and never preached again. How about the other guy, Bron Clifford? He preached for about, five, uh, about nine years, 
But then he started becoming an alcoholic, and he left his wife and his two Down syndrome kids. And at the age of 35, he died of cirrhosis of the liver in a motel. We haven't heard of those guys because they weren't faithful. We've heard of Billy Graham because he was faithful till the end. So a few years ago in 2006, I had the unique privilege of hearing Billy Graham preach when I was down in New Orleans. Did anybody else have that opportunity to be able to hear him? There's, there's a few in here and there's a few in the first service. What I was amazed about Billy Graham was that he wasn't that great of a preacher. He wasn't. You know? he was, I mean, he was good, he was fine, but he wasn't eloquent. He didn't you know, tell these great, grand illustrations. He didn't strut around. He just told a simple message. And he was faithful to that. He was faithful to his wife, to his kids, to his ministry until the day he died. And that's why even presidents were at his funeral, right? Because he was faithful till the end. And I look at someone like that, and I fall short, right? I'm not Elisha. We're not Elisha. We're not Billy Graham. But the great thing is what Billy Graham did say a few years before he died. He wrote this. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive then than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. That's what we look forward to. That's why we strive for faithfulness. To do what's right next and again and again, even when it's hard. Because it's not just the last day, but it's beyond the grave that we look forward to as believers in Jesus Christ. Amen? So as the band comes up, I really want us to think about the end. Where will we be on our day of death. We don't know when it's going to happen. But will you have said, I'm, I'm faithful to you. I still continue to believe in you, Jesus Christ. Maybe I've turned away, but God, I am deciding to be faithful to you again today. Or, or maybe you're here and you're saying, Matt, I don't know. I haven't ever believed in Jesus Christ. I don't know what's going to happen to me after my, I die. Well, that's why I want to pray for you and I want to offer a prayer for you in the same style that Billy Graham used to do hundreds and thousands of times. I want to... I want to offer you a chance to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and you can say it quietly to yourself where you are in the seats. But I want everybody's heads to be down. I want everybody's eyes to be closed. This is between us and God. God, you've challenged our faith in this message, in this series. And some of us feel so unfaithful. We know our sins. We know where we have fallen short. But Lord God, you are faithful. You were so faithful that you sent your son to die for us. And because of that, Lord, we want to believe. We want to be faithful for all our days, till death. So, Lord God, I, I just pray that you would work in our hearts right now. If, with everybody's eyes closed, heads bowed, if you're here and you want to, for the first time, accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and know where you're going after you die, to reign in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ, to be with Billy Graham and get to meet him, maybe. I want you to say this prayer after me. You can say this silently where you're sitting. Lord God, I confess I am a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. I accept your gift of forgiveness and your gift of eternal life. Fill me with your joy as I follow you and strive to be faithful till death.
Everybody's eyes still closed. If you prayed that for the first time, would you please raise your hand? I want to be able to pray for you. Awesome. Thank you. Amen. Praise God. Lord God, all of us turn to you, and, and some of us in here are ready to just recommit and say, I will be faithful again. I have fallen away. I've gotten busy, and things have distracted me from you, but I know that you are faithful, so I want to be faithful in return. Lord, give us the power to do that, to follow you with all our days, so with our last breath, we can proclaim your name. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.